We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come today to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. I should say we return to that study after having taken a brief break to prepare for the Lord's Supper and then have the Lord's Supper last week. So I turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. This is... Again, the word of the Lord. We've been singing God's word. We've been reading it this morning. We now get to read it again for the purpose of our scripture lesson for the sermon. And so I invite you to attend with reverence to the reading of God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. Verses, or, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter six, verses twelve through twenty. Here, Paul writes. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us. At this time, may he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing this morning. Last time we were in 1 Corinthians, before we had our communion prep service and then the following week had the Lord's Supper, we read that because the Christian's identity is in Christ, uh, we must not identify with or continue in a lifestyle that God declares to be sinful. Paul wrote in verses 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So that's the Christian's identity, that we are those who have been washed in Christ. We've been sanctified, we've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so picking up there then, in today's passage, Paul addresses particular sets, or a particular set, I should say, of sins which would have been a special challenge to the believers in Corinth, sexual immorality, especially regarding prostitution. And sadly, that category of immorality is on the increase in our own society. 
So we come today to talk about something that's a bit delicate, but we can't avoid it because it's presented to us here in Scripture. And there was a, a time when, when perhaps some decades ago, if I were preaching this, I would have uh, been very cautious about the way I speak, not that I'm going to be incautious today, and, but uh, today we, we're so inundated with these kinds of things that our children are even inundated with them, and we have to be very careful to, to present what the Scripture plainly teaches on these things for the benefit of all. You may remember from the introduction to this series, as we were, began 1 Corinthians, that the city of Corinth, in that city, there was a, a great temple to the pagan goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And you'll say, say that in quotes, right? Uh, because when we say Aphrodite was the goddess of love, uh, we need to recognize it, it wasn't the kind of self-sacrificial love, for example, that God has for his people, that Christ uh, has when he gave up his life for the church, or that we are called to have for one another, to love God, to love neighbor, to love particularly God's people. No, it was mainly physical love, if you will, uh, even more than romantic love. Aphrodite was not so much the, the goddess of of love in the sense of romance, but it was more the physical side of love that she was associated with. The worship of Aphrodite included people coming to the temple to visit prostitutes, essentially, who served there. And that profession, if you will, was so associated with the city of Corinth because of the temple of Aphrodite that to call a woman a Corinthian woman was to call her a prostitute. Corinthianize was to engage in this kind of immorality. These were euphemisms used in Paul's day. So, in this passage, Paul especially addresses this particular issue, as well as some other issues of sin, including the ways some Christians, under the influence of false teachers, excused certain sins of this nature. The passage culminates in verse 20, which says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So that's really going to be our jumping off point. That's, that's the grammatical focus. The, uh, the verse beginning with four there actually indicates that's where really uh, what all of the passage built up to. You, Christian, if your faith is in Christ, you were bought at a price. You do not belong to yourself. And some people might say, well, well, then isn't it better to not be belong to Christ and be free? But no, you're either enslaved to sin and death and Satan, or you're enslaved to Christ. And Christ is a better master. But you, Christian, then, do not belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord. Therefore, Paul teaches in this passage, number one, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, number two, you must therefore glorify God in your body as well as in your spirit. And thirdly, the body of the believer therefore is sacred, and because of that, number four, you must not sin against your own body by using it for immoral purposes. So let's start with the overarching point of this passage. You have been bought at a price. Notice, as we've seen in many other passages, that verse 20 begins 
with that word for, as I already mentioned. So that tells us that the previous verses are true, as is also the second half of verse 20, because of the truth of that first clause of verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Now Paul doesn't elaborate here on what that price was. He seems to presume that the Corinthian brothers and sisters are going to remember what he's taught them before, what that price was. He explicitly says what it is to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He tells the elders from Ephesus, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God came down in the person of Christ Jesus and gave his life. He purchased his church with his own blood. Likewise, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So that was the price that was paid. Christians were bought at a price. Jesus has purchased every believer with the precious blood that he gave. And when we say that, we don't mean that you know if he was working as a carpenter, training as a carpenter with Joseph, his earthly father, the man who raised him as his own, and you know pricked his finger on a splinter and some blood bled out. That that purchased anyone. What we're talking about is his very life, his very life that he gave to ransom his people from the just consequences of their sins. Either you are enslaved to sin and receive eternal death, complete separation from all of God except for His wrath, or you have been bought by Jesus Christ. Nobody is their own person. Every human being is either enslaved to sin and death or enslaved to Christ. And He is a kind master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, and so we find freedom in serving Him. Since you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have been purchased by Christ, then you belong to Him. And therefore, certain facts and certain exhortations, certain applications for your life follow. And the first one we find in this passage is, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, we saw that the church collectively is God's temple. And Paul will use that again in uh, in this letter and in the next letter to the Corinthian church. That the church is collectively the temple of God. But here Paul points out that, in a sense, the body of each believer is a temple of God. Because we are each indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And so this is God, God the Holy Spirit. Where does God dwell? In his temple. To say your body is a temple is not some trite statement that you use to motivate yourself to go to the gym, right? My body is a temple, therefore I want to care for it. Those kinds of things can be byproducts of this teaching. The fact that Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit has implications for how we treat our bodies, 
Certainly, how we regard diet and exercise would be a part of that. But Paul's aim here isn't to motivate us to get in shape or to to eat fewer carbs or whatever. His aim here is to point out that we must not profane that temple, our bodies which are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by using our bodies for sin, joining them to unclean practices. You treat it the way a godly person would treat the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Covenant period. In the Old Covenant period, a person who loved the Lord would not have wanted to bring anything ceremonially unclean into the temple. He wouldn't have wanted to bring an idol into the temple. He wouldn't have wanted to do something overtly sinful in the temple. Such a person would not have dared to bring a harlot, for example, or an idol into the temple. Your body, Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it follows, number two, you must glorify God in your body as well as in your spirit. Again, this is verse 20. He says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It seems that the people in Corinth, as we look at the context here, we find they weren't confused that they had to glorify God in their spirit. And Paul says, you need to glorify God in your body and your spirit, not just your spirit. They understood they have spiritual life in Christ and their, their worship was spiritual and of course they needed to glorify God in their spirit, but they seem to have bifurcated, they seem to have radically separated their spiritual life from their physical actions. We see that implied in verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. That was probably a popular saying and Paul's repeating that here and saying the way you're applying it isn't correct. There's a popular saying we understand in Corinth that was actually associated with that common practice of prostitution, sadly. It was as if to say, well, this is a physical drive that human beings have. It's a biological need like the desire to eat, so I'm just satisfying that hunger. It's harmless. To which Paul answers, well, God will destroy this world. He'll destroy the food and the stomach, right? He'll, he'll destroy even our fallen sinful bodies. He'll give us new bodies. We, uh, there's a way in which our bodies continue and a way in which there's something new about them in the world to come. But even if the statement is true about the stomach, that food is for the stomach and the stomach for foods, it's not true when it comes to your body and immorality, he says. God made your stomach to digest food. He did not make your body to be used sinfully. It seems there was already at this early stage in Christianity the roots of what would become the doctrine of docetism. And those of you who are here for Sabbath school, it just happened in God's providence that that, that came up in one of the scripture readings we were reading for this morning's lesson, the, the idea of docetism. That's just a fancy word. You may, may not have heard in your everyday life the word docetism, but that's just talking about the belief that spirit is good and matter is evil. So our physical bodies are evil, but our spirits must be good. This was a common belief in, uh, in different uh, schools of thought in Greek philosophy, that kind of Greek philosophy that was popular in Corinth at the time. And so because of that, that being in the culture around them, some of the Christians seem to be thinking that, uh, that, that uh, maybe spirit is good, body is evil, and if 
if our goal is simply to be disembodied spirits, then what we do with our bodies now really doesn't matter much. Of course, that's not our goal. And sadly, uh, you've heard me probably remark on this before, uh, in American evangelicalism, sometimes we uh, get this point. I think uh, preachers at funerals sometimes accidentally, unintentionally communicate this kind of idea when they'll say something along the lines of uh, that this person here, you know, Jim Bob in the coffin, uh, that's not him. That body isn't him. His spirit is somewhere else. That's really him. He's somewhere else. Well, actually, the Bible teaches us that both are true. The spirit is you and the body is you. And God will raise up your body at the last day as well and make it fit for his heavenly presence. Our bodies are still united to Christ as our confessional standards teach. Even when we're dead, even when spirit and body are separated. This would develop into the idea that Jesus could not have been truly human. People thought that he could not possibly be both good and human. He couldn't both be the good God and a flesh and blood man. So they claimed that his human nature was actually an illusion. And this was a part of the scripture that we read in Sabbath school this morning. The Apostle John deals with that kind of teaching in 1 John 4.3 when he says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. There is something Antichrist about saying that Jesus is not a real human being. Paul made us not to be, not Paul, God made us not to be spirits floating around in the ether. He made us to be flesh and blood and spirit. In Corinth, This doctrine was manifesting, it seems, as a kind of libertinism, if you will. Uh, This idea that that we can do what we please. It said, what I do with my body doesn't really matter, as only spiritual things matter. And so I can sin all I want with my body, as long as I'm not sinning in my spirit. I don't know how you could differentiate the two anyway. But Paul says, no, your body is the Lord's. It's his temple. You have to treat it as such. You must glorify not only in your spirit, but in your body, Paul says, as well as in your spirit. Both spirit and body, Paul says, belong to the Lord. Therefore, number three, that leads us to point number three, the body of the believer is sacred. If your body is a temple and it belongs to the Lord, it must be sacred. Verses 12 through 14, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. All things are lawful for the Christian in one sense, Paul says. That is, your sins are forgiven in Christ. And if he has paid the penalty of your sins, then nothing you do, if you stumble in sin, is going to get you unsaved. But, the one who is truly saved, the one who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the one whose heart has been changed, the one who loves God, is not going to want to do the things that that bring dishonor 
to the name of Christ. He's going to want to glorify God. He's not going to want to do things that displease God. If I love my wife, what do I want to do? I want to please her. Right? Paul actually is going to deal with that kind of thing and that's going to bear on what he has to say in chapter 7. If I love God, I'm going to want to please him, especially since he's the one who gets to make the rules. I, I really want to please him. And when I stumble in sin, I realize that I'm, I have temporarily desired that which displeases him. No one is going to be perfect this side of heaven. But the Christian who loves God is going to want to avoid those things. You're going to grow in your desire to do the things that honor God and not do the things that dishonor Him or displease Him. So Paul says, all things are lawful in one sense. You're not going to get unsaved, but not all things are helpful. And even things that are truly lawful, things that please God, aren't always necessarily helpful in a given situation. But Paul's really aiming here more at the notion that uh, Christians have a certain freedom. You have liberty from the consequences of your sins on the one hand, but they're really not helpful for the kingdom on the other. If you were just to say, well, I can just do whatever I please then. That's not helpful. Paul says the Christian does not want uh, to be brought under the power of sin again. We ought not to want that. And so Paul says, I won't put myself under the power of these things. If you belong to such a good master as Jesus, why enslave yourself to other masters or act even temporarily like you're enslaved to them? Those masters like sin and death which bring your destruction, Satan who desires your destruction. So as we've already noted, Paul tells us, God did not make your body to be used immorally. He's going to raise up your body as he raised up Jesus, Paul says. Like Jesus, your body will be glorified. All, of, all that is sinful of it will be left behind. Therefore, it's not the body for sin and sin for the body like it's the stomach for food and food for the stomach. No, rather, it's the body for the Lord, he says, and the Lord for the body. The Lord is going to make you into what you ought to be. So treat your body as sacred. Therefore, number four, you must not sin against your own body by using it for immoral purposes. Notice it's not just a sin against God. You're sinning against yourself, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, against your own body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit when you misuse it and use it for immoral purposes. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Remember that the church is compared in many places in the New Testament to being a body. It's called the body of Christ. In chapter 12 of this same letter, Paul's going to go deeply into that analogy and show how Christians need each other because one part of the body can't say, I don't need another part of the body. Uh, what would our bodies be like if they were just all eyes? Well, you'd be in trouble. You wouldn't be able to do much if you were just an eye. So Paul likens us to a body, but we're one body with Christ as the head. Christ is the owner, so to speak. We are the body of Christ. Each individual Christian is 
a member, a body part. That's actually where we get the word membership when we talk about in the church. We're a body part, an organ, an appendage of Christ's body, in a sense. And that ownership of you by Christ as part of His body doesn't just include your spirit, it includes your body as well. Should we then take this body, which, is, which belongs to Christ and is a part of His body in one sense, has in union with Christ, he asks, and join it to a prostitute, join it to immorality, join it to sin, join it to uncleanness? Well, he says, well, certainly not. Paul explains in verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He's citing there Genesis 2.24, which we read earlier. And in that context, God, of course, is talking about far more than the physical union of a husband with his wife, but he certainly includes that, that aspect of married life. When we take what is meant for marriage and we illicitly use it outside of marriage. We're joining the temple of God, our bodies, to something that God says is filthy, something he says is unclean, something unfit for his dwelling place. Think of all those times in the Old Testament when somebody would try to join the temple of the Lord to something that was inappropriate. God was never pleased with this. Manasseh added idols to the temple of the Lord. Just reading in my personal devotions about all of the labor that Josiah had to go to to cleanse the temple of what his father and grandfather had done to it. Adding idols to it, altars of their own design or of a pagan design to the temple. And there also they had, one of the things that he had to do was clean out the the people who were immoral in this way that we're talking about here, whose houses were adjoined to the temple. People were engaging in this very kind of thing in the temple of the Lord. And here Paul's saying, what do you think God thinks of you doing that with your own body, which is his temple? By contrast, Paul says in verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Much as a husband joined to his wife is one flesh with her, the the one who is joined to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit is one spirit with God. There's a a sort of spiritual union there. Therefore, Paul exhorts all Christians, flee sexual immorality, he says. Notice he doesn't just say, try to avoid it, casually steer away from it, He says, run as fast as you can from it. He says, flee from it. Think of the example of Joseph in the house of Potiphar in the book of Genesis. When Potiphar's wife tried to entice him to commit adultery with her, what did he do? He ran away. He literally ran away. It's a good example. He ran as fast as he could. He fled that immorality. Because, as he said, it would be a grave sin not only against Potiphar, his master, but against God, first and foremost. As Paul explains, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And remember, that body does not actually belong to you. 
So a sin against your own body is actually a sin against Christ. Christ owns your body. It's not yours to do with as you please. My body is not mine to do with as I please. You must not sin against your own body by using it for immoral purposes, Paul says. So just to wrap up, you, Christian, have been bought at a price. The price of Christ's precious blood. Therefore, don't consider yourself to belong to yourself. Recognize that you belong to Christ, and that includes your body. Your body, therefore, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. Treat your body as God's temple. Don't profane it. Glorify God in it with how you use it. Don't think that only your spirit matters. That seems to be the excuse that was used to excuse sin here in Corinth. Only spiritual things matter, so what I do with my body is a matter of indifference. No, it's not a matter of indifference. God will raise your body up and glorify it too. So treat it as something that God considers sacred because he does. Glorify him now with your body. Indeed, since you have been purchased by Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, your body is sacred. So treat it as such. Take care with it. Not to join it with things that would dishonor God. Any more than a godly prophet in the Old Testament would have brought an idol into the temple of the Lord. Especially do not sin against your own body, that that sacred temple of the Holy Spirit, by joining it to immorality. Use it to glorify God, rather. Use it for good and clean things. In Romans 12, Paul tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not as dying sacrifices. You're you're not going to go to an altar and be killed, but offer it up. Christ has already offered his own body for that purpose. So you offer up your own body as a living sacrifice. Live with it in a manner that glorifies God, recognizing it doesn't really belong to you anyway. Use it for good and clean things, God-honoring things. Do not use it for unclean and wicked things, for you have been bought at a price. You belong to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has purchased us with his precious blood and redeemed us out of slavery to sin and death, that your Holy Spirit has indwelt us, has made us his home. And so we would ask, O God, that you would grant that we might glorify you with the things that we do with our bodies, that we would avoid all those things which bring dishonor to your name, rather that we would be built up after the righteousness of Christ who never sinned against you, So we pray that we would not sin against him by doing with our bodies as we please, but rather that we would do those things which please him who owns our bodies as he has purchased us out of slavery and bondage to sin and death and Satan and has made us his own. Let us ever remember that we are not our own, that we have been bought at a price and honor our master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Let us honor Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.